College is interesting in America. Students and their families frequently go into debt to pay exorbitant tuition rates for an experience that is supposed to prepare them for the workplace, yet for many, the system seems to be getting increasingly out of touch. A job market's changing, the world's more competitive, and at the end of the day, do naturally imaginative kids growing up really want to be told that they have to choose a path like pre-med or business if they hope to be successful? Well, it's an especially big conversation from where I'm recording and currently attending college as a freshman, the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. We're an old and very, well, traditional university, often defined by our obsession with being founded by Thomas Jefferson and, you know, being forged in a model of high-minded academic ideals and traditions that continue to this very day. It's not campus, it's grounds here. And I'm not supposed to call myself a freshman, but a first year. We're as much known for being a lively party school for entitled frat boys as we are for preparing Northern Virginia's next generation of realty agents, corporate tycoons, and, you know, political elites. Exciting, right? Well, that picture I just painted is not 100% reality. In fact, I think our school and its environment gets generalized a lot. I'm Max Patton, and as a UVA student, I want to tell a different narrative that I see emerging here. I want to tell the stories of students and graduates here at the University of Virginia who aren't following the path you would expect as trailblazers and as innovators. Welcome. This is Who Shoulders, a podcast that, true to its rhetorical name, will start to ask whose shoulders these innovative students are standing on. Legacy and tradition may be a big part of UVA, but they don't define everyone who goes here. Let's talk about the people who are changing their future. Today, I'm excited to talk to Susanna Jones, a 2017 graduate who used her degree in computer science to enter the video game industry, where she currently works in New York City at one of the biggest game publishers around. And she did it all coming from a school where the cultural intersection between your average student and the arts and game scene is practically zero. Let's find out how she did it. Hello, Susanna. Hey. Hey, so when you grew up, what were your hobbies? Um, oh man, growing up, I was always drawing. Like that was a really big thing for me. I'm a very visual person. So um, I was always drawing. I was always just making things. Um, growing up, I like, I, my Game Boy Color and I were like super inseparable. I would like carry it around with me everywhere. I was always like drawing characters and watching movies. And I was just very drawn to very creative visual mediums. So like, you know, getting into games, games have kind of recently become more of a mainstream things, uh, specifically video games. But like, I'm sure when you were growing up, video games in general were also like really stigmatized. How did that kind of manifest? Pokemon was really more of a, a trend. That was a really big thing. So like um, my family members were really into Pokemon. Well, my, my two brothers were really into Pokemon. Um, the kids in the schoolyard were really into Pokemon. So it was a kind of a social thing for me. I got, um, I was able to like connect with both my brothers and like people in school by like talking about our favorite Pokemon. I ultimately I was able to make a lot of friends with people because I would draw their favorite Pokemon for them and that kind of thing. Um, so it was kind of a cool social outlet for me. I didn't have any consoles past the Game Boy that were kind of mine. We had an Xbox and a Wii, but they were more shared or they belonged to my brothers. So when I finally got my first laptop, I won it in like a school lottery. Um, the only thing I could play were like emulated games. So I emulated a lot of RPGs that were kind of similar to Pokemon. So that kind of kept that kind of passion and love of like games for me alive. Yeah. And like for people not familiar, emulated games are basically like a way to play older games on like modern hardware, right? Right. Yeah. So I emulated a lot of um, basically Game Boy games mostly because that was the console I was familiar with. 
Um, I mean, I played a lot of Melee with my brothers on the GameCube and things like that as well. Um, so you were kind of like playing these classic uh, time-tested games. Right, yeah. Um, and I was homeschooled for about a year or two, so we would share this like family computer. And I played a lot of these like internet flash games. So that was another thing for me, like Club Penguin was a really big <laughs> defining experience as far as like being online and like meeting people, but also just playing games. Uh, Webkins was a big thing. I miss the Neopets trend, but I understand it when people talk about it because a lot of those conventions are very similar to the games I played. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, like growing up, I remember like Club Penguin too. I remember like that was a big deal because it was this like dawn of social games. And for like, you know, kids who didn't have Xboxes or consoles, not being able to like play online, I feel like Flash games and that kind of whole mode of gaming, you know, just gaming in a web browser give a lot of people like an end to it. Yeah, I mean, I remember, like, if we were in school and, like, there wasn't anything happening or school was out, the, the teacher would sometimes let us jump on, like, miniclit.com and we'd play these, like, Flash games online. So that was kind of a big defining thing for me. But, like, at this time, you know, like, again, games were just weren't as mainstream and, like, were also, like, I feel like kind of like a boys thing, maybe with the exception of games like Pokemon that just, you know, transcend age, gender, everything, like... I, there's like a ton of old Japanese people who play Pokemon. But like with a lot of games, I feel like there's this like stereotype of who can play games. So like, did you ever think about that when you were younger? Or was it like, was that something that you never noticed? So growing up, like having two brothers um, meant that I was kind of used to a lot of boyish things. Like I grew up watching Star Trek with my dad, watching like classic Star Wars with my dad. Um, so I was kind of more interested in boyish things anyway. Um, I didn't have a lot of like a group of girlfriends growing up. I had like one or two close female friends. There were times growing up where like I would be hanging out with a couple of guy friends like in fifth or sixth grade and they'd say things like, oh, you're not like other girls. And I hate that now, but like it at the was, time it was like you're you're a part of our club. Yeah, it was a very different experience. That's not to say, though, I have had my fair share of like. I'll express liking a game and immediately someone will like correct me or think I'm wrong or doing it for attention. That was definitely a thing I think a lot of women that were interested in games can vouch for as far as like, there's a lot of weird gatekeeping, but because like I had my family and I had like friends that were supportive in that way, I never really felt like I was that different. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but yeah, gatekeeping sucks. <laughs> Yeah, I can agree with that. But you were kind of like generally able to like organically insert yourself just because like your family and like surrounding friends were also, you know, into that culture. Right. Yeah. Another kind of big moment for me um, growing up was the dawn of like YouTube Let's Plays. That was a really big thing for me because I couldn't play a lot of the consoles if say my brother was playing or we didn't have a game I wanted the internet existing and allowing me to like watch Let's Plays um, was a really big deal for me because it allowed me to like realize that games had could have these really complex stories. And that's what kind of drew me into games. I feel like games as a medium have a lot of untapped potential for the kind of stories we can tell um, through the interaction of it um, more than just like a passive medium, like a book or a movie. And we were going over earlier how you were like always into the visual and like the atmospheric element of you know, things in general, right? Right. So I, I missed, say, the the PS3 generation, um, but I didn't like playing. I missed those games. But 
watching them online, I didn't miss them at all. And if anything, like being a watcher allowed me to like absorb the story more than if I'd been playing it myself. Um, and watching other people interact with the game was also kind of a big deal for me. That's actually one of the reasons that like I'm really right now in my role at work, I'm a UI programmer. And I think part of the reason that appeals to me was because I just spent so much time watching people interact with games and seeing like where frustrations were drawn and like you could have a really solid product, but if that interface was throwing people, like it just wasn't great, but you could have a really average game, but if it had a really engaging interface, um, then it could totally elevate the product. Yeah. And I feel like it's something people don't consider a lot. Like you say UI, just for those who might not know, just to make clear user interface, it's becoming like a trendy thing, right? Like, oh, your app design, your website, does it have a good UI? Like that's something people talk a lot about now. But I feel like games historically have always been really innovative when it comes to like user interface. And, you know, occasionally there have been hits, there have been misses and that because they're so boundary pushing. But like when you think about the, interactive nature of like something like a video game there really does have to be a lot of work placed on the shoulders of this like interface you know like games are fundamentally a question of how do you get this like clunky you know control scheme and way of manipulating your character into something that someone can like easily pick up and understand yeah and for a lot of games there's a lot of kind of legacy expectation like if you pick up a controller and you hit x most experienced gamers are going to expect to jump but if you hand a controller to someone who's totally foreign to games, has never touched a controller before, um, they're not going to know that. So I think with, while there has been a lot of innovation, there's also been a lot of legacy and expectation. So I do think there's a lot of room to grow. We just assume people know things when sometimes they don't. Right. And like, yeah, you like you said, there's almost like a kind of gatekeeping going on there where like, you know, there's gamers who are skeptical of things like motion controls or VR or things like that because they're just like, look, this is gimmicky. It's pointless. I'm a no experienced gamer dude. But <laughs> like for a, a lot of people, I feel like, you know, like look at the Wii, right? The, the Nintendo Wii was like the most, one of the most successful consoles of all time, I think, like probably up there with the PS2. And that's almost entirely because it was this completely different control scheme and way of interacting with the games console. Mm-hmm. or like mobile devices right like the way people play mobile games just having that intuitive like idea of you touch the screen uh and also by the way the device you play games on is the device you also bought to you know like check your email and call people so i feel like those kind of elements of convergence and innovation really helped probably like at that time you know as you were growing up make games so much more accessible yeah that barrier to entry is so much lower um by mobile which is great. I mean, it's led to like a lot of a lot of demographics that aren't normally associated with games jumping into the the scene, which is great. Yeah, I do think it's interesting in this day and age now where we have mobile and uh, it's not viewed as real gaming, but it's totally where a huge market is. Um, so it's where most people are playing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. It's more it makes games more accessible than ever before. Right. Um, personally, I do prefer console or. I prefer dealing with hardware that was made for games, but mm -hmm. like, I, I like the trend. I like being, I like the idea that like my mom's been playing words with friends like every day for the last like three years. And like, because of that, she kind of understands games on um, games a little bit more when I talk to her about them. Um, it's like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like there was this really interesting stuff happening with games. And I guess right before college, going into high school, what was your life like then? What was just the culture of, you know, 
of the, of the world like at that point? I started high school in 2009, I think. Yeah, that sounds about right. That was my freshman year of high school. I grew up in a really rural town, actually. There wasn't really a lot to do. So you kind of had people that were really... And this was after you moved to America, just to make right, sure. Right, yeah. So we moved yeah. when I was about 10. Um, I lived in Northern Virginia for about two years. And then I moved down to Central Virginia. Um, and let me see, that was probably like sixth or seventh grade. Um, so transitioning to this uh, really rural environment was very interesting in that like, there wasn't a lot to do. There were a lot of people that were really into sports. Uh, you kind of had your, your general cliques, but because the school was so rural, there was just like not a lot to do compared to like your average, more affluent school system. Mm-hmm. And most of the people that played video games were like kind of exclusive and only really played things like Halo or Call of Duty because Call of Duty was in its heyday then. Yeah. I never really had like gaming friends in school. I had more like YouTube or anime friends. Like we would just talk about shows and things like that. So it's kind of like a different circle like related to that gaming culture, but its own thing. For sure. Yeah. And like, I had friends that were a lot more into the like, anime side of things. And anime culture has its own set of video games and its own culture. Um, so I was exposed to a lot of those kind of like those fighting games and things like that through them. Yeah, no, there definitely was a group. And a lot of it was fueled by like, you know, the, the prevalence of shows like Bleach and Naruto, One Piece, like those kind of, those shows were really popular then. And coming from like really loving Pokemon, a lot of those kind of conventions were kind of mapped over i grew up watching the show um so that was kind of the thing uh oh and Yu-Gi-Oh was a huge part of my childhood so like that was another thing that kind of mapped over mm-hmm. and were those friends kind of like i remember like for example like of my school experience you know the kids who were generally like more into games or more into like even youtube and things like that were usually like band kids right or like kids in a group like that and like i know you said there weren't as many things besides sports but was there any kind of like organized activity or club that you tended to like congregate around? So I feel like if my school had had a band, we would have been band kids, but we didn't really have a band. Um, we weren't super well funded. Like my, my county is, I think, like the second biggest, like in acreage county in Virginia. But we only had one public high school that I graduated with 100 people. So it, it was a very rural area. Um, so funding wasn't a big thing for us. So we didn't have a band. Drama clubs had been attempted, um, but nothing had really, at least during my time at the school, that hadn't really panned out. I've heard that might have changed. So I feel like had we been in a bigger ecosystem or a better funded ecosystem, there would have been more stuff to do. But ultimately, it was just kind of us hanging out during gym and talking about things we liked, um, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then once you, you know, you, uh, you, you get, I'm guessing, you know, you apply to UVA, you get in, what was your thought process like then, you know, going to this big school where, you know, for those who don't know, UVA is like a big part of its Northern Virginia kids. It's, it's its own culture, but like, I feel like that's a really big part of it, right? And you're going to college, it's naturally a much bigger environment. What was that like as you were starting that? Well, something that's kind of interesting about my background was I actually, Right out of school, I ended up applying to a different university in Utah, and they had a really strong animation program. But the animation program was a computer science program with an emphasis in animation. And I was really excited. Like the idea was you go, you take your intro courses, you apply to the program and then get in starting your second year. Uh, And the school has an amazing placement rate for um, like putting people in Pixar and DreamWorks. And like that was my dream. So I went in, took a bunch of intro CS courses. Um, but the school just wasn't a great cultural fit for me. Um, and I kind of miss being home. Utah is very like 
dry and brown. Um, it's very As different. I imagine. Yeah, and, and mountainy. It's very different from Virginia. So I kind of got homesick. Um, so I looked into my options. My boyfriend also um, was attending UVA. We went to the high school together. Um, so that was another motivation for me to come back. So I looked into it. I saw that UVA had one of the better CS departments in the state. So I ended up transferring back. So I kind of missed that initial like freshman experience at UVA. And I know that's kind of a big deal for a lot of people. And UVA's transfer setup wasn't phenomenal. Like, you know, when you start on the lawn, you get like a nickel and there's a lot of that kind of orientation stuff. Transfer students don't really get that. (laughs) So and I miss like living in apartment, living in like dorms on the first year, that kind of thing. I just always lived off grounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, UVA does really have these like marks of tradition. Like I remember just this year, you know, like as the last batch of people were moving into, I think, you know, the oldest dorms that don't have AC, it was sold to them as well. You know, you'll be the last part of this tradition. Yeah. UVA is a school that is very obsessed with itself in many ways. And so I've definitely, I, I totally understand what you mean by the process of transferring in later and getting that, you know, having to be indoctrinated into it all at once. Yeah. And for what it's worth, my boyfriend um, was there as a first year. So he got that experience and I just kind of got to live it vicariously through him. Charlottesville is an interesting city for me because um, when we moved to Virginia, we started a pig farm and the closest farmer's market that's worth going to is in Charlottesville. So we, every Saturday, I used to get up at like the crack of dawn with my dad to like go sell pork at the farmer's market. So I'm very familiar with Charlottesville's downtown, but this actual university part of it, I was not familiar with. So it was kind of a weird experience coming back. Um, Bubble within like a place you already knew. Yeah. So like downtown, I, I know that pretty well, but going back to the campus was interesting. Um, so I, I just lived off grounds. I had a few roommates here and there uh, for my couple of years at UVA. My boyfriend lived on Brown though. So like I did learn a lot about like what the dorm life was like. Mm-hmm. And for context, Brown is like this very central kind of like residence college at UVA that's basically right at the center of the campus. And yeah, and Brown's got a very distinct um, culture as well. Uh, people that live at Brown, it is very interesting. My boyfriend kind of felt like an outsider while he was there, but um, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but Brown was just an interesting place to be. You did meet a lot of people that were very interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. We're very passionate about what they do. There are a lot of creative people at Brown. But yeah, it's like, it's so you're in this, you know, new environment within an environment and you're uh, looking at CS from the beginning. Were you, were you like a math kid in high school as well? Or with CS, like I know you were interested in animation and with um, like practicing that, I imagine visually and digitally um, for a long time. How did that correspond with computer science? So I was a math kid in the sense that I was taught math concepts, I memorized them, and then I did well on tests. So I wouldn't consider myself a math kid, but I did well in high school. That knowledge that I did well in high school did not serve me well when I went to college, though, because um, at my first university, I walked right in. I'd done calculus one in in high school. I'd done it at a community college program, so I had like a credit for it. And so I was like, great, I'll start Calc 2. And I walk in my first day of Calc 2 and they have these like example questions on the board. And they're like, hey, if you don't feel like you know these, you might want to consider retaking Calc 1. And I was like, yeah, sure, it'll be good review. So I drop out, switch to Calc 1, and I get a C. Um, So college math is very different from high school math. 
fortunately in high school, because I had such a small, it was such a small rural area, the teacher had a lot more one-on-one time with you. So if you were struggling, the teacher could work with you. Whereas in college, math courses tend to be very like machine-like. There's like a million of you in a lecture hall. Your professor's not going to know you unless you pound them during office hours. And even then they might not remember you because there are a million students pounding them during office hours. So um, you get to know your TA way more than you know the professor just because math is such a a lot more people take math than some other courses. Because mm-hmm. it's so foundational to like so many other things. Right. That said, I wish I had taken math more seriously in college because ultimately in the game industry, if you want to be like a gameplay programmer or a graphics programmer, it's very important to know your 3D math, like your linear algebra and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. it, I wish I had taken that more seriously because when it came to job interviews, it was a, a little bit of a struggle trying to teach myself some of the concepts I'd missed. So you're, you know, in computer science, uh, you've transferred in, you're now, I guess, a second year technically in UVA parlance or sophomore. <laughs> um, how are you liking it like the first, you know, year or so? Oh, yeah, I, I really liked UVA. Um, I mean, it is like you mentioned earlier, coming from a smaller high school to a bigger university is always a big jump. Um, but fortunately, like I had connections already there. My family wasn't too far away, so I didn't feel too lost. Yeah, I I really enjoy UVA. UVA is kind of what you make of it, for sure. You could definitely cruise by and no one will notice you, or you can step up and join clubs and try to like make the most out of it. My second year of college was pretty good, actually. And so were you starting to like uh, participate in clubs and do that? After my first semester, I realized that I was already like three semesters into college. And I was like, oh, shoot, I'm like a quarter of my way through, almost a quarter of my way through college. Well, over a quarter, I guess, at that point. Um, and I haven't done anything because <laughs> that being a transfer student kind of wipes your slate clean. And I wasn't really involved in a lot of stuff at my first college. Um, so I immediately was like, oh, shoot, I panicked. I like signed on to so many clubs. Um, and ultimately, I ended up having to backpedal. That was a th- when college students ask me for advice. I always say, like, sign up, be proactive, but don't be so proactive that you end up having to bail <laughs> on some of the, your commitments. Um, I, I think I was vice president of the knitting club. Um, for a few years, for, for a semester. Uh, we, I kind of shared duty with uh, another student that was studying abroad. And was like that something you were familiar with before or you were just trying new things? Oh, I mean, I've, I've always been a knitter. <laughs> like, I, um, that was another thing when I first moved to Virginia, uh, right after I homeschooled, um, I became friends with a librarian <laughs> and the librarian taught me to knit. She get, taught us very basic stuff. So like that was in a course, but then during recess, people would leave and I just kind of stayed and I kept knitting with the librarian. So like, oh, nice. that was kind of a thing that started. And then like, eventually, like my grandmother's a knitter. So eventually I talked to her and she taught me some more like skills. But um, the knitting club was nice because it was a way of like getting to know people. There are a lot of people in the CS department at the time that were into knitting. It was a cool, the club itself. Crossover. Yeah, the club was very like, the way it was set up was that you came with a bunch of people. It was mostly girls. We had like one or two male members, but usually they were dragged there by their significant others. Uh, (laughs) And uh, we would just knit patches and patches are the best way to kind of learn how to knit uh, because knitting is just a series of rows over and over again. So as people were learning, they were making these patches. And then at the end of the semester, we would sew the patches together into a giant quilt. And then we would donate however many quilts we'd managed to make um, at the end of the semester. It was a really cool experience because you got to like catch up with people and talk I wish I had kept up with the club more as college went on, but unfortunately, as I got more responsibilities and school became harder, I wasn't able to commit as much. 
but it was like a nice cathartic release while you were in it. Oh yeah. And um, I think the club's still going strong. So I do recommend checking it out if anyone's listening. <laughs> Shout out to you, Vane Knitting Club. That's yeah, cool. warm up America. And then like when it came to things more involved in like game development and other things, you started to do that as well, right? Right. So I joined, I was involved in two organizations while I was in school in the CS department. One of them was Women in Computing Sciences. And I was involved in the Women in Computing Sciences Club at my previous school. Um, it was kind of non-existent, but I helped form it while it was starting, I guess. I didn't have a ton of contribution to it, but I was aware it existed. So when I came to UVA, I was looking for the equivalent. So I signed up, I attended a few meetings, and then I applied to, I ran for webmistress. And I was the only one who ran, so I got it, which was... Webmistress meaning like you'd be in charge of web technology stuff? Yeah, or... so like website stuff, helping okay. out. It's like, it's more of a support role once the website's up and running. And the second club was um, student game developers. And I went to a couple meetings. I, I went to their global game jam that they hold every year in January. And I really enjoyed it. And I was like, cool, okay, I could get into this. And for those not familiar, game jam is like a really a period where you just go into overtime and like make a game in some period of time. And like, it's a creative competition. Right, yeah. Global game jam is every year. It's in January. It's like a uh, national thing. So uh, UVA would hold its own version of that. So I helped out with that. I ended up running for external relations, which was also uncontested, fortunately. <laughs> so I was able to become um, the unofficer in that as well. So by the time I'd hit like senior year, I was involved in quite a few clubs and I had a lot of responsibilities, which looking back on, I really shouldn't have taken on that much. But you kind of like found a bunch of niches that you could like occupy. Yeah, but I was really passionate about all the groups I was in. I had a BA, um, so my degree isn't in the engineering school. It's in the College of Arts and Sciences. So I ended up studying architecture as a minor. So between my architecture minor and any architecture student can tell you that their life is in that building. They never leave. It's a very consuming major. I don't know how the majors do it because the minor destroyed me. Um, so between trying to get that minor done, being an officer in two clubs, uh, it was, it was a lot, but I, I learned a lot about it. Like a lot of leadership skills. I made a lot of friends. And what inspired you to do the um, architecture minor as well? So that little, like, that desire to do animation was still kind of there for me when I came into school as a second year. So I decided to take an animation course, a, a second animation course, I guess. And um, the only animation courses at UVA are through the architecture school, which is unfortunate. I mean, it's cool. I'm glad I learned a lot of animation 3D tech through the design lens, which is what architecture is very, like, heavy on is the design side of things. So I ended up taking a course there and I really enjoyed it. Um, and I did well enough that the professor asked me if I wanted to TA. So I TA'd for that course the following time it was taught, which was like two semesters later. Mm -hmm. But by the time I had TA'd and taken the course, um, I think I was like three credits shy of, oh, and I had taken another 3D modeling course. So I was two classes shy of the minor. So I figured I'd just go for it. Um, Architecture is also really interesting to me. Um, it allowed me to scratch that creative itch um, while I was doing CS stuff because CS stuff can get really bogged down and it's not as creative as like art or design. So architecture was a nice way of doing that. And as a BA student with the integrated um, major, I got credit for 3D modeling and animation courses. They just counted towards my major, which was helpful. 
Nice. And so was that kind of like a general experience? Um, I know like architecture at UVA has a very different culture from like, I feel like the rest of UVA. So was there also like an experience of just experiencing, you know, the people in the architecture program? Because you mentioned it's, you know, it's a really intense program. The people in it are a very specific breed of UVA student. What was that like? Yeah, architecture school culture is, it's interesting. Um, they they kind of have to grow, like the every class of architecture students, from what I understand, they it's a small class that comes in every year, but they end up becoming very close and very tight because they spend crazy hours working on projects and critiquing each other's projects and growing. So I think it does kind of create this unique culture compared to a lot of, say, like in the College of Arts and Sciences, it's so huge. Like you'll see someone in your class and then you'll never see them again for the rest of your college career unless you like make a point to reach out to that person. Um, whereas like in architecture, you're kind of stuck with the people in your course. Yeah, I ended up rooming with an architectural history major um, for my last two years of college. So I got to see a lot of that from her perspective, which was interesting. I don't know. I really enjoyed it. They're very, very passionate and they're very, very dedicated in ways that I'm not used to seeing necessarily. Um, with like CS, you do get a lot of people working crazy late hours, but you get a lot of lone wolves. In architecture, it's that's not necessarily the case. It's very like social. Which is really cool, I feel like. And I, I know like going into the games industry, which of those cultures do you think like became more representative of it? Or do you think both were like really helpful to be exposed to? Well, so as an engineer, the CS lone wolf, um, ideology is very much more prevalent, at least from what I've seen. If I were to have been, say, a designer or an animator or even an artist, I feel like that culture is more similar. When it comes to like art, people tend to take it a lot more personally. Like if you critique someone's art, it's like you're critiquing them. Whereas if you critique someone's code, it's like, oh yeah, I forgot a semicolon. It's not the end of the world. It's like, it's the code is not me. Um, mm -hmm. So you kind of get a different kind of I don't know. The culture around art versus engineering is very interesting. And I, I liked being in between, though, and communicating between those lines. Like as a UI programmer, that's kind of what I do is I talk to UI artists and they say, hey, we need this tool or, um, hey, it'd be cool if we had this feature. And then I can try to like communicate with them and give them what they want on the engineering side of things. Because in many ways, those are like opposite careers, because I know like comp sci, there's a lot of people in it, you know, who really care. But it's it's also like one of those, you know, like it's it's the modern like business degree. It's it's very lucrative and it's very uh, like it it attracts people who care a lot. But I feel like it also attracts a lot of people who can, like you said, maybe they won't take criticism as seriously because it like doesn't matter as much to them. Whereas anyone involved in art and pursuits like that is naturally going to be like extremely invested in the nature of their work. Right. Yeah. People that get art degrees are very passionate about what they do. Like so passionate that they'll take these courses and potentially go into debt over what they're passionate about. Whereas a CS degree is very like, it's a surefire degree. You're, you might not be happy with what you do at the end of it necessarily, but you are going to find a job is kind of the attitude mm -hmm. that I see a lot, that I saw a lot in the CS department. One of the professors told me that architecture is actually for the amount of work you put into it, it is the lowest paying output job, uh, output field across the U.S. apparently, which is crazy to me because that, that definitely spells passion, right? That's very like, a, um, I'm doing this because I love it and I want to improve and I want to grow um, versus a CS degree where it's like, I'm doing this because, I mean, you do. It works. Yeah. And you do have passionate people with CS. That's not to say you don't. But the attitudes are very different. And especially at UVA, where like art people are in, are in such a minority, I feel like they're even more kind of 
dedicated to what they do. Oh, for sure. Because UVA is not like an art school. Like in, if you were like a resident of Virginia and you wanted to stay in state and you wanted to study art, you'd go to VCU or you'd go to a school that like specializes in art more. Um, I feel like with UVA, especially architecture, because we have such a great legacy with Thomas Jefferson and the Rotunda, um, like they're just very passionate about what they do. Going into, you know, I guess your uh, end of your junior year, senior year, as you're thinking of like building a portfolio and doing internships, what was that process like? Oh, right. Yeah. When I started joining all these clubs, I realized I didn't really have anything on my resume and that was my main motivation. I was treating my second year as though it was my first year, which is not smart when I'm trying to compete with people who have been treating their second year as though it's their second year. So I panicked. (laughs) That's why I joined a bunch of clubs. And I also actually ended up getting involved with um, women in tech in Charlottesville. Charlottesville Women in Tech, that was the club name. And it was a bunch of women in the community. Like these weren't college students. These were just people in the town. Um, who were interested in technology or worked in technology. And I joined their Slack group and I was just trying to find mentorship. And I met this awesome lady named Courtney who works at Linden Lab. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Linden Lab, but they made uh, Second Life, um, which is... Big MMO, kind of like this, I feel like the dawn of this mainstream idea of like, you're all playing in one world or something right. like that. Right, yeah, it was huge. Like their heyday was like the mid-late 2000s. Um, and they're still going strong. They had a lot of players when I was there. Um, and uh, they have a tiny office on the downtown mall, which was perfect. Oh, wow. Um, so I was, she was like, hey, yeah, let me see your resume. And I was like, cool. And so she brought me in. She took a chance on me. I, it was my first internship. I feel like I could have made more out of it if I had known what to expect, you know. But I am so glad she took a chance on me because ultimately that was what empowered me to like go on and look for other internships and and how did you find out about that like the slack you know in the first place like where did you find out about that I actually started um I think in one of our women in uh one of our women in CS officers meetings at UVA someone had mentioned collaborating with CWIT which is the Charlottesville Women in Tech group and I I think I was just googling for opportunities in Charlottesville I was also involved in uh, Computers for Kids which is a awesome nonprofit downtown in the X Park that helps uh, minority um, students, basically empowers like late middle school to high school kids to like learn more tech. And through that, I had also heard about CWIT. So um, CWIT did a lot of like workshops with this group. Yeah. So I I interned on the downtown mall, which was a cool experience. Um, It was interesting, like coming from growing up doing farmer's markets to like actually having a tech job on the downtown mall. And ultimately, because I had that experience on my resume, I uh, got Activision's attention when I put my resume out for other jobs. And just to make it clear for people, you probably heard of Activision, but if you haven't been, been around a long time, really big time video game publisher, probably like, you know, one of the biggest Nintendo Electronic Arts Activision. Those are like, when you think of big game publishers, those are among the big guys. Like if you were going to you're talking about, you know, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, those kind of jobs. Activision is like, I guess, that equivalent in the games world. Yeah. And something that's kind of cool, actually, is uh, Activision was founded 40 years ago this year. So oh, wow. that makes Activision the second oldest video game publisher after Nintendo, um, which mm-hmm. is awesome that they're we're still going strong after all these years, especially when you see other companies that like historically game companies don't tend to have a huge lifespan. So it's cool to see Activision still 
Mm -hmm. running. As you're doing this internship, were you pretty much set on working in the games industry? Right. Yes, I was. (laughs) So like I said, when I came to a realization that I might want to work in games after being in SGD, the Student Game Developers Club, um, I realized I'd missed the boat on all the internships, like all the big internships. So that's when I met Courtney and she was able to connect me to Linden Lab. Um, Linden Lab does not call itself a games company. Um, They kind of pride themselves on virtual worlds. Um, so it kind of has a different culture uh, than like, say, working at EA or Activision. Because they don't sell Second Life as like World of Warcraft, right? Like it's like, oh, you're going to get on with your bros and like, you know, do some raids. You get on Second Life and their idea is that it's a social experience. Exactly. Right? It's most, it's more like a sandbox. Like you make what you want out of it, mm-hmm. which is awesome. And um, Courtney's team actually was a, um, a back-end web team. So it specialized in like account management, uh, financing, subscriptions, that kind of thing. So ultimately, I was still kind of working game adjacent. Um, I would have liked to have been in games, but I was not turning down this opportunity to even like have some experience working alongside a company that did something similar to what games did. Talking to people in the industry, that seems like a thing a lot of people have to do. Like they'll work in like government simulation tech or... um, Do what they have to do to get their resume to kind of work at their true passion. Exactly. Or like I'll meet people that are like, hey, I know mobile games are a big thing. I'm going to go work for mobile tech startup. So I have that experience and then I can eventually jump over to uh, King or PopCap or any of those like big mobile studios. And get more oriented, I guess, towards like, you know, a lot of people who work in the games industry are themselves, you know, core gamers and they want to eventually, you know, end up working on big core games. Yes. Like and when I say that, I mean like, you know, not Candy Crush or, uh, you know, like Zynga, I don't know, like mobile games necessarily, but like, you know, Destiny, uh, like Call of Duty, these really big titles. Yeah, a lot of people, it's kind of interesting talking to people on the engineering side of things. Because a lot of the engineers I've met in the industry actually aren't as passionate about games as you think. They're more passionate about the kind of unique problems that engineering for a large scale video game or even a mobile video game affords them. Like Mm -hmm. you tackle all kinds of weird problems when you're working in like a game engine or making a game as opposed to like working on like bank tech or... Uh, government tech or something that's not really game specific Uh, just because the nature of the medium there's so many interesting problems that need to be solved like graphically interactively that kind of thing but with designers you also get a weird not weird you get an interesting range in where they come from so like i've met designers in the industry i was at gdc last week so i've heard all kinds of stories and that's the big game developers conference that like across the whole industry, whether you're an independent developer, like, you know, part of a company like Activision, it's a really big event. Right. Um, From GDC, I've heard all, and in the industry in general, I've heard stories of people that just like really liked one kind of game. So they broke in or that kind of thing. There is a lot, there are a lot of new grads that I met that were very passionate about wanting to work on console. But I do think that with the way the industry is shifting and there's more of a focus on mobile that people shouldn't be uh, scared of necessarily working in that space. Uh, especially mm-hmm. now that there's such a big market. You actually do, you know, have like, because like you said, the video game space is notorious for being in times unstable. So the prospect of working at a company that, you know, is doing pretty well making mobile games might not be that bad if you're in that industry. For sure. Yeah. Um, with the with the nature of the industry, you are kind of taking a risk by working there anyway. But if say you were mm-hmm. an engineer interesting in work, interested in working in the industry, mobile is not a horrible way to go in that like, say the company you work at, unfortunately something happens to it. You now have mobile experience and every company 
on the planet wants a mobile app or wants mm -hmm. to improve their mobile app. So you are a valuable asset. So if you're just being realistic, it's really practical. Oh, for sure. Well, like you were saying earlier with the uh, with mobile games, it's like, oh, cool. I actually already own this device. I don't need to go buy an expensive uh, console for it. Like, right. The accessibility is great. Were you still, you know, you'd had this awesome experience, uh, you um, kind of getting this internship and then kind of getting the attention of Activision. Were you still, were you having thoughts about the games industry? Because like, like you said, it is a risky proposition in general. It's a very like, at times, you know, hostile and hard industry. Right. You know, I've heard so many crazy stories about like being a woman in the industry or being a woman in tech, especially in games. It sounds like the games industry let's say pre-Gamergate, was a very rough place to be. Again, Gamergate, this big online kind of harassment campaign that became known as Gamergate and kind of, I feel like in the mainstream, solidified this like perception of gamers as people who like were misogynistic and, you know, were a very insider culture, right? Right. I think pre that, it was definitely more of a boys club. I'm not speaking as an ambassador of my studio or Activision, but... It was kind of a scary thing coming into it in that, like, I don't play multiplayer online games for a reason, uh, because I don't like the harassment that I will inevitably get by being on the mic or anything like that. That's one reason I've kind of stayed more towards, like, narrative story-heavy games. What's interesting, though, is I kept hearing all these stories, and I'd met some really horrible gamers, and, like, there are news articles that come out occasionally that, like, draw attention to some studios that don't have like amazing culture or don't treat their female employees or non-binary employees very well. But like personally, knock on wood, I haven't encountered that yet. Granted, I've only been in the industry for almost six months full time, but I think I'm just fortunate to be at a studio that like really um, values how it treats its employees. And I feel like, you know, Activision is a big company. It has, it's a respectable company. Like, they're not going to be... That said, I'm sure there's plenty of big companies that, you know, have, like you said, these horror stories. But I feel like, in general, a company that with that many people on its payroll with that many expectations, in especially in a post-Gamergate world, is going to try to, you know, take care of its employees. Yeah. And, like, from what I've heard from friends I have at, like, EA or Ubisoft, there has been a very big, heavy emphasis on supporting minorities in the industry. Do you, do you think like, you know, the darkness of Gamergate post that it brought to light that the fact that like, hey, guess what? Like, despite what some people might want, our industry really is diverse and vibrant. And like, there are a ton of people in it who don't happen to be, you know, white men. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even GDC. GDC is so awesome because you get all kinds of people. Um, it's a professional industry conference, but there's so much dyed hair. There's so many tattoos. There's so many unique perspectives. Uh, last year was my second G. Well, last week was my second GDC. You do get tweets occasionally about horror stories. I was part of a Discord group that was for women supporting women and non-binary people supporting each other, say at parties. So like you could ping the Discord group if someone was at a party and was making you uncomfortable. Like someone would come help you out uh, or help you get home safely. That kind of thing. But like every year you see horror stories and every year you also see tweets that are like, the GDC I knew 10 years ago was nothing like it is today. I'm really proud of how far this industry has come. I think it would be really interesting to have been working pre-Gamergate in order to draw that comparison. I'm sure it was just a different culture at the time. I just want to like kind of recap really quickly, like this whole opportunity you had in the first place with the um, women in, in tech minorities in Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. And that incredible opportunity, like, I don't, I don't know too much about 
in general, you know, the, being a guy at UVA, what the experience is when it comes to industries like technology, engineering, and computer science with the like gender diversity. But like, did it feel that different going from UVA to, you know, going to GDC, working for Activision for a big company? Like, how much of a culture difference was that? Well, this is kind of interesting. UVA, well, at least when I was there, there was an article that came out that said that UVA has UVA's engineering school, which I was not a part of, but the way the CS courses were taught when I was there was that they weren't intermingled. So college CS kids were taking courses with BS CS kids. There was an article that came out that said UVA's engineering school is one of the highest female to male ratios in the country. If not the highest, there may have been some kind of like things in there, stipulations, like maybe it was the highest public, but it was up there. It was like one of the better schools as far as representation goes, which is awesome. I personally never really felt like my gender was an issue when I was in school. I was definitely aware of it being an issue for some people, but, uh, or, and I'd heard stories about the industry and that kind of thing. That's why I was really involved in women in CS. Cause we were, even though we weren't like a minority that was treated badly, we were still a minority group coming into UVA. I think it was like, depending on the course. So if you're in like a general CS course, you could expect to probably be one of maybe six uh, in a class of like 40 or 50. But like, if you were to say, take game design, I was a TA for game design at UVA. And I think I was the only female TA in my section of the course where we had labs had one female student. So it it is interesting. (laughs) Like CS as a whole is attracting a lot more women, but they're tending to gravitate towards like working for social media companies or working for banks or working for government because like those are much more stable and lucrative options. Especially at a place like UVA that like, you know, like we've gone over is not a very arts or, you know, games oriented school to begin right. with. Right. And the cross section of women in the CS departments that are getting degrees and you take an even smaller cross section of that, that care enough about games that are willing to take, say, the pay cut that comes with that. It's very few. <laughs> and then on top of that, UVA not having a very art oriented program. Yeah, it's like a subset of a subset. When I worked at Activision... We had one other female engineering intern and she was from Tal Poly and she was saying that it was a pretty similar situation. There wasn't a lot of people in games so much, but like when I described, say, being one of like five and 40 or 50, she was like, yeah, that sounds about right. So I don't know. It it is interesting when you get that cross section of students that want to go into games out of an already tiny group of students that want to go into CS in the first place. So you found that UVA wasn't necessarily like this, you know, particularly gender divided or like imbalanced place given like, you know, the the industry as a whole, but that it was kind of like representative of, you know, the way things are. Right. Yeah. As a female engineer in the games industry, there aren't many of us like across the board, like at GDC, when you do meet a lot of Women in the industry, they tend to be producers or artists or designers, which is great. And even in those fields, they're still minorities. It's very rare to find another female engineer, especially one that has stayed in the industry long term. That's in general. Women in tech don't tend to stay very long, mostly because of different reasons like family or imposter syndrome or mm-hmm. all kinds of reasons. And the tech industry has its own you know, gender problems as well. Right. So I think games is just another subset of those issues. They're still reflected in games because at least in digital games. Digital games are still a subset of tech. If there's like, you know, a culture of games in general that's just, you know, still a boys club, even compared to, you know, things like 
Facebook, Google, Amazon. Those are, you know, I think everyone accepts that everyone, no matter who you are, uses those. Whereas games, people don't necessarily accept that everyone uses them. Do you think diversity at the level of production of games can like positively impact the perception of games in general and like people who play them? Oh, for sure. hundred percent. I think, um, Diverse perspectives, whether they're racial or sexual or gender-based, can really contribute to how a the direction of a project. It might like bring up ideas um, that weren't necessarily seen by a group that's predominantly like homogenous. There was a great GDC talk by Robert Yang last year where he talked about lighting in games. Robert Yang is a professor at NYU Game Center, and he mentioned that like in Elder Scrolls Skyrim. Uh, when you set up your character, uh, like when you get off the cart and like you do, you see the whole dragon sequence in Elder Scrolls, you can set up your character. And if you pick a Nord or like a human character and you go for a dark shader, the lighting just blows up. You can't see the character at all. And he wasn't saying, hey, the studio the team that made this is racist or the studio the team that made this doesn't care about people of color. His statement was more I can, I can only assume the people that worked on this game, that QA'd this game, that tested this game, were people that didn't think to test for someone of color or to test the different color palettes because they just mm-hmm. hadn't, the thought hadn't occurred to them. Whereas, say, if their team had been more diverse or had more people that were aware of those kinds of problems, that issue might not have happened. Yeah, so I do think that having a diverse array of perspectives on a team is super valuable. In general... Are games becoming, do you think games are going to become a more, you know, mainstream cross-section? Like you said, right now, it's this cross-section of, like, people who, within tech, decide to, you know, opt into games instead of working for these, you know, big mainstream companies. Is that a trend that is becoming, like, you know, even more so? Like, are more people going into games? Um, I think so, personally. Um, I do work for a studio that's in upstate New York. Um, so we have a lot of talent that's been there for a really long time. We might not be catching on to a lot of the kind of talent that say a studio in California might have, because there's a lot more talent out there. Like USC is cranking out games, uh, game developer degrees left and right. So they're getting a lot of fresh talent. So I do, I would assume the people that are getting this new wave of people that are interested in the industry that weren't traditionally before, um, would be the studios on the West coast. But I believe so. I mean, looking at GDC, seeing all those diverse faces, it's so exciting. The indie scene is really what's taking over the most from what I've seen. But I'm sure that that sentiment and that crowd of people will eventually make their way up to AAA. You know, at schools like UVA, like, again, we're not like, again, is it going to be more of a thing where like, maybe UVA starts to have like actual like organized, you know, gaming internships or focuses towards the games industry? Like, are things like that, do you think, going to happen in the near future? Or do you still think that's far off? Well, I think that game dev degrees are a lot more common than you'd think. A lot of uh, schools like Full Sail, USC, NYU are cranking out game dev degrees left and right. The problem with a lot of these degrees, from what I've heard, I didn't attend any of these schools, so I can't speak on their behalf. But from what I've heard, a lot of these schools don't do a great job specializing their students. Like, hey, I have a game dev degree, but I specialize in production. Or, hey, I have a game dev degree, but I specialize in design or animation or any of those kind of specific fields. So we have a lot of talent um, that just can't find their place because they don't have like a specific role. I think the future, once game dev degrees become more prevalent, because it will not surprise me if UVA decides to have a game dev 
emphasis in the CS department in the future or a game dev emphasis within the media studies department or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, a few of my friends that have that are kind of in similar roles to me at other companies, they went through their schools where they had a CS degree, but ultimately like they specialized in something. Since UVA doesn't have like, it didn't have a specialized program when I was there, but from what I've heard, there's now like a cybersecurity emphasis, which is awesome. I kind of made my own emphasis by having the BA. So mm-hmm. with my BA, I was able to say, hey, I want to take animation. or Hey, I want to take uh, music technosonics, just like a music course. Or, hey, I want to take um, media studies courses on games. So that allowed me to do that, but still come out with ultimately a CS degree. You had the benefit, though, of that like liberal arts college experience, even though you were going into, like you said, your own like self-created specialized path. For sure. Yeah. And I'm very lucky. I do acknowledge that a lot of what got me here was I did have a lot of privilege coming into this and I had a lot of networking and it was a lot of right place, right time stuff, which isn't the case for everybody especially at a lot of schools where they're turning out a lot of students that are also vying for the same jobs and are competing with each other. And I guess that's just like what I'd like to end on is how does it feel? You know, you like grew up, like you said, you know, playing Pokemon and, you know, probably some Activision games too, I imagine as a kid. What is it like now working, you know, you worked on projects like Destiny 2, like like, um, very big games like that. And you're still, you know, working on big projects at your studio. What is it like to, you know, look back and think like that you made it here? Well, it's really cool, actually. I ended up getting my full-time role because I, I got my foot in the door through a women in tech conference where I, um, Grace Hopper uh, conference, which is really cool. It's an annual tech conference where I met the CEO of my studio and she was recruiting and uh, she took my resume and she was telling me about like the studio's history. And she mentioned games like uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! for Game Boy, Barbie for Game Boy, uh, some old Crash Bandicoot games for Game Boy. Like a lot of these old legacy games that her studio had actually worked on. And I was like, oh, I've played these games. That's awesome. And I got like super (laughs) jazzed about it. It was funny because then she pulled out Destiny 2. And I wasn't as reactive to that as I was to, oh, cool, Barbie for Game Boy Advance. (laughs) I I love the studio I work at now because they have a great legacy. And Mm -hmm. fortunately, a lot of their output was the kind of stuff I was digesting as a kid. And that speaks to another thing also, just like I want to quickly touch on, like while you were a student and stuff, like you said, you had a really busy life. Like I imagine you didn't actually have that much time to actually continue playing that many games. No, unfortunately. I I did play a few indies as they came out. I got my hands on Life is Strange, which isn't really an indie, but I played that. um, Story-based kind of alternative games. Yeah, things I could get through in a weekend. So a lot of Telltale games, a lot of um, like Undertale, like a lot of little indie Mm -hmm. games here and there that were like... Or like Limbo, what's the uh, Limbo sequel? Inside. Inside. I have not played that, but I watched a playthrough. Oh my God, (laughs) you need to. I own Limbo. I would still play it for yourself. (laughs) Inside is so good. Oh God. Yeah, I have Limbo (laughs) on my Mac. I love it. Um, And I keep meaning to get around to Inside. Is that on Switch? Yeah. I, uh, that's a good question. It, you know, everything probably <laughs> is now, uh, which is as it should be. Abzu is the other one I'm thinking of where like, I'm I, like in high school, I, I was really busy. And so like, that's been my experience recently too, where I played games like that, that just let me explore and chill out and like, not invest 50 hours of my time, which is, you know, very normal for games. Right. Now. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate with school that things get so crazy that I hadn't had a chance to keep up. But the ones I did cap, uh, keep up on were like really cool and motivational. Um, after playing, actually, Undertale came out around the time that I decided I wanted to do games. So Undertale was a cool motivation for me. Where I, I learned it was made by one person. I was like, 
I can code. Why can't I do this? And it like kind of motivated me to like mm-hmm. look for those kinds of paths. So the few games I did play were helpful. <laughs> yeah, like you have these projects like Undertale and Stardew Valley, like they really do blow your mind because you think like the talent and passion that must have gone into oh, that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I can't even imagine. Just even the little games I helped him with game jams and things like that are so time consuming. Or even now working in the industry, it's these large scale projects. I can't imagine doing it alone. <laughs> yeah. And in general, what has that been like? Like working, you know, Vicarious Visions is a pretty big studio, part of an even, you know, bigger company. What has that experience been like? Um, what's cool is being in a AAA uh, company is there's a lot more funding and the roles are a lot more clearly defined. So like coming from, say, being a student where it's like, okay, you know how to use Maya? Make some 3D models. Whereas like here, it's like, oh, cool. You're a tech artist who specializes in rigging. Like you already have like a very niche role set up. Um, Like even with an engineering, it's like, oh, cool. You're an engineer. What do you want to do? And I was like, oh, wow. I can actually just pick a niche area and not just be the default programmer. So that was a really cool experience. And because everyone has such niche roles that they've started to specialize in, you work with a lot of very talented people which is really cool and really intimidating, <laughs> especially in the engineering department. I'm sure you also get to meet like, you know, heroes or like people that like you probably respect a lot because maybe they worked on something that you actually played or like you just like, you know, you know, they've been a veteran of the industry for a while. Oh, for sure. I mean, like, um, so my studio, we worked on a lot of licensed games. Well, they worked on a lot of licensed games back in the day, a lot of Game Boy ports um, and eventually worked on Tony Hawk games like the Pro Skater series, and then eventually Guitar mm-hmm. Hero, and then Skylanders. And it, we've kind of just been jumping off of different franchises. So it's really cool when like someone will just go, hey, back in Guitar Hero days, we used to do this. And I'm like, oh, that's so cool. I played Guitar Hero when I was like 10. <laughs> like, yeah. like, it's fun hearing the development side of something that I grew up playing. You are at a job that many people consider like a pretty fun job. Like even though like it's real work, like, you know, if you, people might, I don't know what the perceptions people have of like the games industry are, but like, how do you, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you, you know, family and friends and everything. I'm sure there's a lot of people like who might raise an eyebrow, like when you say, oh yeah, I went to UVA and I work in the games industry. What is that like? Is that very normal? Are there are a lot of your coworkers in a similar situation or is it like a badge of honor? What's that like? Ultimately, my title is that I'm a junior software engineer. So um, fortunately, that's the kind of thing that is mostly accepted. It's like, oh, she just works with computers. Um, so yeah. a lot of people tend to, and we live in a really awesome age right now where games are kind of mostly accepted as like a medium of entertainment that you can do. I mean, you still have a lot of people that aren't quite adopting, but um, it's not nearly as foreign as if this were, say, like the 80s or some the 90s, where it was just associated with being like an arcade thing or uh, a very niche thing. Um, And I think my generation, the one that grew up with like Game Boys, we're now entering the industry. It's becoming more and more wholesale. Like a lot of people are still playing games in their free time. It's not just a childish thing anymore. So fortunately, I think most people are just like, oh, that's cool. What games do you make? Or if they don't care about games, they're just like, oh, that's cool. And then they just move on. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Susanna for joining me as the first guest. If you're curious about the work that her studio, Vicarious Visions, does, and they're hiring if you're interested in that, well, there'll be a link in the description to their site. This has been our first episode, and I'm just so happy you made it through. Really, I am. 
If you enjoyed the show, it'd be a huge deal if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And you can also subscribe in your podcast app of choice to keep getting future episodes and stories of innovative UBA students. Also, if you have any friends or family and you want to share this show with them, well, feel free to as well. Whose Shoulders will return next month with another guest. Once more, you're all awesome for listening. Have a good April, and we'll catch you again in May. Peace.